Well, a bright and early good morning. A New York City family was tired of the big city life, and so Dad decided to sell everything and buy a ranch out west where he intended to raise cattle. A few months later, friends visited and asked if the ranch had a name. Well, said the would-be cattleman, I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife favored Susie Q. My son liked the Flying W, and my daughter wanted the Lazy Y. So we're calling it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. But where are all the cattle, the friends asked. None survived the branding. Compromise can be dangerous. Compromise can be deadly. And nowhere is that more true than in the moral realm. Nowhere is that more true than in spiritual decisions. Compromise kills. We're going to see that today in a short letter Jesus addresses to the church in Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Now, we could identify this church by its environment because in verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This church lived in a difficult environment. They lived in a stronghold of Satan. They lived in the teeth of of the lion. So we could identify them by saying they had the devil as a neighbor. But I prefer to identify them by their problem. Because as this letter unfolds, we're going to see that their problem was compromise. Compromise is when we change the question to fit the answer. Compromise is when we change God's question to fit my answer. And compromise is the besetting sin of a church in an environment where Satan dwells. Compromise is the Achilles heel of a Christian who lives in Satan's backyard. Now this is pertinent. Because with each passing day, Satan seems to gain more territory and establish his kingdom, his throne in our nation and in our city. And the temptation is to change the question. The temptation is to water down the message, to dull down the cutting edge of Christianity, to lower the standard, to make it more palatable. It's so easy to compromise with the world's opinion of truth. It's so easy to compromise with the world's opinion of morality. It's 
so easy to change the question to fit the world's answer. And that's what the church at Pergamum did. They flirted with the world. They courted the world. And eventually some there married the world. And Jesus has some convicting and penetrating things to say to this church and to some of us. And he begins this letter the way he begins every one of these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 with the designation in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Jesus introduces himself with a part of the description that John gives in chapter 1. And here he goes into verse 16 and he says, I'm the one who has the two-edged sword. Now, what is the sword? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ephesians 6.17 says, The sword of the spirit is the word of God. So the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is the word of God. And so writing to a church in compromise, Jesus reminds them that there is a standard. God's word is the standard, and you are not to compromise that. And if you notice, it has two edges. It cuts both ways. It cuts coming and going. There are two edges to the Word of God. One edge brings salvation, and the other edge brings judgment. One edge cuts through our pretense. It cuts through our excuses. It convicts us. It brings us re to repentance. And it brings us salvation. But if we reject it or ignore it, it brings judgment. Remember in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes out of heaven on a white horse? It says he comes out of, with the white horse with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, and with it he judges the nations. He strikes the nations in judgment. So the one with the two-edged sword has something to say to this church who is compromising. And I would say to you today, if you struggle with compromise, maybe you need to focus on this picture of Jesus. Maybe you need to take down your picture of Jesus holding the lamb and establish the picture of Jesus with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. 
Now he starts talking to this church, and the first thing he does is give some good news. The commendation in verse 13. And he begins this way, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus says, I know where you live. You live where Satan's throne is. You say, well, Dan, I thought Satan's throne was in hell. No. He will ultimately be in hell, and when he gets in hell, he won't have a throne there. He'll be in judgment. His throne is elsewhere. The Bible calls Satan the god of this world. And the Bible says the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. You see, Satan is in control here. He reigns here. And apparently, he has an especially strong influence in certain places, in certain cities. Back in verse 9, we read that in Smyrna, Satan had a synagogue. Now here in Pergamum, we find out He's got a throne. Some places are more oppressive than others. When I was in Bible college in Chicago, I went down every Monday night to Cook County Jail. When you go into Cook County Jail, you pray first. And when we used to go down to Cook County Jail, there was something about that place. You could just feel the oppression of that place as you walked in, and it made you dependent on the Lord. This verse tells us some places, he's the God of this world, but in some places, he has established his throne, and he is more oppressive. And Pergamum was one of those oppressive places Pergamum was the capital of Asia. It was about 60 miles northeast of Smyrna. It was about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea in modern-day Turkey. It was a culturally advanced city. It had a library with 200,000 volumes. Now, this is long before the printing press. 200,000 handwritten volumes. It was second in size at that time only to the library in Alexandria, Egypt. They were famous throughout the ancient world for their sculpture. This city was full of shrines, full of temples to pagan gods. The best known was the altar of Zeus that sat on a hill overlooking the city. And Pergamum was known for its commerce. They, their main industry was parchment. In fact, the word parchment is a derivative of the name Pergamum. And they made parchment out of animal skins. That's why when you graduate from college, you say, I got my sheepskin. Morally, this city was Greek to the core. The underlying philosophy was live and let live. They were committed to loose living, free living, few limitations. And Satan had a stronghold there. And amidst this stronghold of Satan grew up a church. We don't know who started it. We don't know how it came about. All we know is it, it was a church 
in a very difficult environment. Their address, if you wanted to write to them, was at the foot of Satan's throne. And Jesus says to them in verse 13, I know. The Greek word oida, I know by experience. Jesus had lived his whole life in that environment. He was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, face to face with Satan. And so he writes to this church that lives where Satan's throne is. And Jesus says, I know by experience. I know what it's like to fight the lion in the lion's den. And he says, I have some good things to say about you. Notice the rest of verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. They were right on Satan's turf, and yet Jesus can say to them, you hold fast my name, and you don't deny my faith. And even when one in their number was killed, they still held fast to Jesus. Now, this guy Antipas is only mentioned this one time in the Bible. But he gets a great commendation. He is called my witness and my faithful one. That's a title given to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation. That's pretty high commendation. Would you like to hear Christ say that to you? Then be like Antipas. He didn't go with the flow. He didn't compromise, even when it cost him his life. He was faithful unto death, as it said in verse 10, and Christ gave him the crown of life. And when he was killed and the threat came over to the rest of the church, they didn't run, they didn't flee, they didn't quit, they didn't deny the truth. They held fast to Jesus' name. And the Lord Jesus commends them for that. Some of you sitting here today may be saying, well, you know, I work in a tough environment. I live in a difficult neighborhood. I go to school in an oppressive atmosphere. And it may appear like Satan has a stronghold there, and it may cause you to be intimidated, but we have been promised victory, even in Satan's territory. In fact, the church was designed for this kind of terrain. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's designed for this kind of terrain. And this is where the church at Pergamum was. It was Sin City. It shared a zip code with the devil. It was an oppressive place. And yet they held fast. They did not deny Jesus' name. 
And Jesus says, that's good. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you. And here's the condemnation. It's really twofold. In verse 14, he says, you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And in verse 15, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now notice two things before we jump into this. It was some, not all. Which tells me that many in that church were holding fast to Christ's name, but some were holding fast to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then secondly, I want you to notice this, and this is important. When Jesus begins to address the subject of compromise, he starts with the teaching. He starts with the doctrine. Because what you believe affects how you behave. You act wrong because you think wrong. You and I carry out disobedience in our lifestyle because we have first programmed it into our heads. Now, what are these teachings that they were holding to? Well, the first is the teaching of Balaam. Look at verse 14. Because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Now, what did Balaam teach Balak to do to Israel? If you want to read this, you can go back to Numbers chapters 22 to 25. Balak was the king of Moab. Israel had just come up and defeated the Ammonites. He knew he was next. And so he feared Israel. And in response, he recruited a prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet for hire. So Balak recruited him. He went to him and said, or sent messengers and said, I'll give you X amount of dollars if you'll come and curse Israel. And he said, I could never curse Israel. And the king said, I'll give you more money. And he said, well, if you put it that way, I'll try. You see, he was a prophet for profit. He was a preacher for sale. So he goes to help Balak by cursing Israel. And three times God stopped him. This is a guy, you remember his donkey spoke to him? His donkey was a better prophet than he was. His donkey was more perceptive than he was. The donkey saw the angel. He couldn't see the angel. Three times he tries to go. Three times God stops him. Finally he gets there. And three times he tries to curse Israel. And instead, three times God stops him. And instead he blesses 
Israel. And so Balaam became frustrated that he couldn't complete the terms of his contract. And so he taught Balak the king another way to get at Israel. And this is what he taught him. It's in our verse. Don't attack them with artillery. Attack them with a stumbling block. Don't destroy them in one big battle. Just trip them up with compromise. You see, the teaching of Balaam is if you can't beat them, join them. The teaching of Balaam is if you can't curse them, corrupt them. Balaam's teaching was a teaching of compromise. Get them to flirt with the world and court the world, and eventually they'll marry the world. Get them to compromise with some little things, and before long, they'll be compromising with big things. We need to understand this because this is Satan's most effective ploy against the church. What did we learn in the church at Smyrna? Outright persecution does what to the church? It purifies the church. But you see, if Satan can get us to feel comfortable and mingle and compromise with the world, he's got us right where he wants us. A church is not destroyed by persecution. It's actually strengthened. A church is destroyed by compromise. There's a Russian parable about a hunter who was walking through a clearing and he saw a bear come out of the woods and he turned his gun to shoot the bear and the bear said, hold up, hang on, don't shoot. What are you looking for? And the hunter said, well, I'm out here, it's cold, I want a fur coat. And the bear said, fine, I'm, I'm hungry, I just want a good meal. Let's compromise. So they took a walk together and after a while the bear was walking alone. He had his full stomach, and the hunter had his fur coat. The message is that compromise will eat you up. And that is the teaching of Balaam. And some in the church at Pergamum were falling for this message. Now, Balaam's strategy targeted two areas. You can see them at the bottom of verse 14. The first is idolatry. They were eating things sacrificed to idols. Now at the pagan shrines, they would bring animals and they would sacrifice them. And after they sacrificed the animals, many times the, the, the hooves and the, the lips and things that weren't important would stay at the temple, but the people would come home with the meat. And that day, when you didn't have refrigeration, you came home with a whole carcass. What did you do? You had a barbecue. You had all the neighbors come over and eat and celebrate and have a feast. And so, 
Balaam's message to Balak is, when you guys bring your meat home and have your barbecue, invite your new neighbors over. Israel just moved into the neighborhood. Have them over to the barbecue. Now, in the Old Testament, it was prohibited for the Jews to eat with the Gentiles. That was God's way of keeping Israel separate. That does not apply to us today. They were invited to a barbecue, and they thought, well, what can it hurt? Meat is meat. We'll go to the barbecue. We'll eat. We'll mingle. Pretty soon, they're going to the pagan temple. And before long, they're taking a little pinch of incense and throwing it on the altar. And then before you know it, they're bowing down in idolatry, compromise. Second area, first is idolatry. The second area is immorality. Balak, just send your pretty young women over to Israel and flirt with the men. Immorality always starts out rather innocently. It's a little look, a little thought, a little flirting, a little touch, a little compromise. They sent their women over to Israel and caused a stumbling block for Israel. What started out small became big. And if you read in Numbers chapter 25, you read about a man who actually came into the camp with a Moabitess woman and went into his tent and committed fornication right in front of Moses in the camp. Pergamum is living where Satan's throne is. This is a city committed to pagan idolatry and committed to immorality. In fact, they had temple prostitutes at that time. And I'm sure there were those in Pergamum who reasoned, we live in a loose society. In comparison to others, we're doing pretty good. I mean, what do you expect? Everybody's doing it. Does that sound familiar? You say, you should see what goes on at my office. You should see what goes on at the school. You should see what the other faculty are doing. I can't be expected to have biblical standards in our world. Well, that's the teaching of Balaam. Intermingle with the world, flirt with the world, court the world, compromise with the world, adopt their philosophy, and before long, you will be bowing down to their idols and following their lifestyle. And then there's a second teaching, and that's the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Now, this word Nicolaitans comes from Greek, two Greek words that you're familiar with. The first is Nike, which means to conquer. And the second is laity, which means common people. This is the whole division of clergy and laity, the hierarchy, those who conquer the laity. And this is compromise as well because that's the way of the world. Jesus said those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. The world's leaders exercise authority. God's leaders exercise servanthood. We have a great example of this, this Nicolaitan doctrine in 3 John, verse 4, where John talks about a man by the name of Diotrephes, and it says, he loves to be first among them. He loved to be first. He loved to have authority. And there it tells us he was keeping people out of the church. He was throwing people out of the church. He was acting as a monarch. He was lording it over people. That's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Back in verse 6, it tells us the Ephesian church hated this doctrine. And it also tells us that Jesus hates it. But some in Pergamum said, hey, it makes sense. It works. It works in the world. Let's try it in the church. So the teaching of Balaam compromise with the world's morals. The teaching of the Nicolaitans compromise with the world's methods. Jeb Stuart Magruder, presidential aide during the Nixon White House scandal, said this, we had conned ourselves into thinking that we weren't doing anything really wrong and by the time we were doing things that were illegal, we had lost control. We had gone from poor ethical behavior into illegal activities without even realizing it. That's the nature of compromise. It's so subtle, so slow, so quiet, so unoffensive, so diplomatic until it's too late. Are you compromising with the world today? In business? In your finances? In your sensual life? See, compromise says it's not really wrong. It's just not best. But what does Jesus say? Verse 16, therefore, repent. Compromise says it's not really wrong, it's just not best. Jesus says, repent. Repent of what? Repent of your compromise. Repent of flirting with the world and courting 
the world. Repent of seeking those things that Satan dangles out in front of you. Repent. That word repent means turn around. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your actions. Change your directions. Compromise is slow. Repentance is sudden. Stop. Turn around. And seek the Lord instead of the world. And then Jesus closes with some motivation. He gives us a negative and a positive. First, the negative, verse 16. Therefore, repent or else. I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm guessing this is no one's favorite verse. As parents, we say that a lot. Change or else. Here's Jesus saying that. Turn around, repent, or else. Now, my mom used to threaten me as a kid. She would say absurd things like, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to come over there and tear your head off or some ridiculous or, or if she was even being realistic, she said, I'm going to come over there and I'm going to bring a switch or I'm going to bring a paddle or, a, you know, I'm going to bring my belt. This is sober stuff. Jesus says, repent or else I'm coming over there with my sword and I'm going to war against you. Wow. When you read about Balaam, In Numbers 22 to 25, when you get to chapter 25, God tells the people who aren't involved in immorality to take their swords and go out among the people and kill them. And they killed 24,000 people. And Jesus, in that same analogy, says, if you keep this up, I'm coming after you with my sword. And then he says at the beginning of verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not just addressed to a church in the first century. It's addressed to us today. Do you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you? In our loose living society, are you compromising in this area of idolatry or immorality? Jesus says, repent. Respond to the convicting edge of the sword today so that you won't have to face the judging edge of the sword tomorrow. That's the negative motivation, and that's pretty negative. But he closes with a positive motivation in verse 17. When he says, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. 
in every one of these letters. Jesus includes a promise to the overcomer. Now, who is the overcomer in the context of this message? What is it that I as a Christian have to overcome? I have to overcome the subtle influence of the world. I have to overcome that message that I so much want to believe. And that is that I can have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. That's what I've got to overcome. Because that is a lie. You cannot be an overcomer and a compromiser. You are one or the other. And to help us, help motivate us to be an overcomer, Jesus promises us two things. Now, this is the kind of verse when you're reading the Bible, you read over this and say, I have no idea what he's talking about. And you go on. This is rich stuff. He promises us two things. The first is hidden manna. Now, what's manna? That's the bread that fell out of heaven for the Israelites in the wilderness. They got manna every morning. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you manna, but I'm going to give you hidden manna. Now, why is it hidden? Well, I think it's hidden because the world doesn't know anything about it. The first step in Israel's compromise was to eat at the pagan temple. To eat. To get fulfillment. To get satisfaction. Jesus says, I've got something for you. Manna for you that the world doesn't know anything about. And of course, we find out in John 6 that Jesus is really the manna. He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. So what Jesus is saying is, you can go over and try to find satisfaction in the world, but I'll tell you what, they don't know anything about satisfaction. Because if you want satisfaction, you need to come and get the hidden manna, which is fellowship with Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that satisfies. And then he promises a second thing, and that is a white stone. Now, in the courtrooms in the Roman Empire, the verdict was declared by the use of stones. If you got a black stone, you were guilty. If you got a white stone, you were acquitted. A black stone says rejection. A white stone says acceptance. If you were in the court and they rolled out the black stone, the guards would come in and take you away. But if you saw the white stone, you were free. You were accepted. You were as free as anyone else in the courtroom. You could have lunch with the judge. You were accepted. Now, what's the point? Why do you and I compromise? Because we want to be accepted by the world, right? 
We don't want people to reject us. So we compromise. And that's a natural inclination. I want people to say, you're okay. I accept you. And what Jesus is saying is, don't compromise with the world so that they will say, we accept you. Be an overcomer so that Jesus will say, I accept you. But that's not the whole story. On the white stone is written a name that no one knows except you and Jesus. That's pretty intimate. Do you have a name for your spouse that you, maybe you guys call her, that you only call her in private? You probably would be embarrassed if you called her, or she would be embarrassed if you called her that in public. Uh, maybe she's your love angel or your sugar dumpling or your, if you like dogs, your love poodle. I don't know, I'm working with you a little bit on this. Um, yeah. um, see, that's your intimate name for it. It's not to be shared with other people. It's, it's between the two of you. It's intimate. And this is so cool because Jesus is saying, not only do I give you the white stone that I accept you, but you and I are going to have an intimate relationship. I'm going to call you by a special name that nobody else knows but you and me. So not only do we have fellowship with the manna, we have acceptance with the white stone, and we have an intimate fellowship that no one else knows about. Not only do I have fellowship with Jesus the world doesn't even know about, I've got fellowship with Jesus that other Christians don't even know about. That's good stuff. Are you trying to get acceptance from the world this morning? Are you flirting with the world? Courting the world? Looking out for those things that the world is dangling in front of you that says, this will satisfy you. Jesus says, repent. Turn around, and I'll give you hidden manna, satisfying, fulfilling fellowship that the world doesn't know anything about. And I'll give you a white stone with a new name, intimate fellowship that no other Christian even knows about. Today, will you stop changing God's question to fit your answer? And will you change your answer to I'm turning around and saying, yes, Lord, to whatever question he asked me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this challenge. Lord, some passages of scripture strike some of us and not others. This one strikes all of us. We're all confronted 
with the slow-moving erosion of compromise in our lives. And Father, where we see that happening, I pray today, we would respond in repentance to turn away from those things that are attracting our attention and turn our attention totally to you and the fellowship that you offer us, which is beyond anything we've ever known anywhere else. And Lord, I pray as a result that we would not be influenced by the world, but by being in your presence, we would be influencers in this world for your kingdom. We give you thanks for that privilege in Jesus' name. Amen.